From the Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South, this is the Swanee Review Podcast. My name is Luke Gare, and I'm an assistant editor at the Swanee Review. I'm here today in the William Rolston listening room with poet and visual artist Gabrielle Bates. Gabrielle is the author of Judas Goat, a stunning poetry debut released earlier this year from Tin House. Judas Goat has received praise from the New York Times, Chicago Review of Books, Vulture, Garden and Gun, Poetry Foundation, and more. Her work has appeared in places like The New Yorker, Poetry Magazine, Plowshares, Virginia Quarterly Review, and the Best of the Net Anthology. Gabrielle, it is a distinct pleasure and a privilege to have you here on the podcast today. So thank you for being here. It is such a joy and a delight to be here, truly. And I just wish everyone listening, wherever they are, if they're doing dishes, if they're walking around, I wish they could see this gorgeous room that we are sitting in right now. I'm so glad you named it in the intro, this listening room. We're just surrounded by this beautiful wood paneling and records. And I feel like I've been transported into another world. It's so wonderful to be here with you. It's been about six months since Judas Coat went into the world as a full-fledged bona fide collection. I'm curious, how, if at all, has your relationship to the book changed in, in such a short span of time? I feel like I'm in an interesting place of trying to figure out how my relationship to it has changed. In the very first months, immediately after it came out, I was really trying to do right by the book, by which I mean do as many readings and events and things as I could do while maintaining a semblance of my sanity and um, not overextending, hopefully. But, you know, you put so much into a book. I put about 10 years into this collection. And the more people it reaches, the more people might have a chance to connect with it. It's not going to be a book for everyone. Um, It shouldn't be. But I do know that the more people who encounter it, the more likely it is to end up in the hands of someone for whom it, it might have some meaning. I, I wanted to overcome whatever personal squeamishness I had over the promotion aspects and, and really just try to do right by the book. And after I did that for about three months, I felt like I'd hit a kind of finish line. I was like, okay, I did it. <laughs> I did I did my job as, as an author, and now I can retreat a little bit back into my shell, try to understand what my relationship to poetry is going to be now, really just start to follow my curiosities on the page and as a reader, and replenish my stores a bit as, as an introverted person, as so many writers are. Coming to a conference like this, starting to do a few more events again, I feel like I'm reintroducing myself to my book. Another aspect of working on a collection for a really long time and only making a collection out of primarily pieces that have really been distilled and 
withstood a certain test of time for you personally um, is that maybe it's less likely to immediately feel like someone else wrote it. I hear a lot of authors talk about by the time the book comes out, because publication cycles can be a little lengthy, that they no longer really recognize the self that wrote it or something like that. This still feels like me. It still feels like me in my 20s, you know, that decade and the sorts of pressurized questions and themes I I was reckoning with at that time. You mentioned that it still feels like like who you were in your 20s. So widening the temporal distance a bit here, I just want to briefly return to your point that this was a project that was 10 years in the making. And I'm interested in how your own artistic and narrative intentions concerning this project in particular might have shifted in the time from where you were a student at a desk in a classroom to taking part in a literary magazine to participating in in, in workshops or, or conferences. I guess what I mean to ask here is in, in those 10 years, what was like the the discernible turning point where you felt that this was a project that was taking on a more discernible shape? I felt, if anything, like so many of my poems were almost too much a part of the same project for a long time. And I wondered how to incorporate more variation in terms of tone and obsession and recurring imagery. My work naturally tended towards a darkness and a menace and a kind of uh, grotesque, (laughs) dark attention to the animal world. It was easy to intuit that eventually they would accrue into a collection that belonged together. I struggled most with order and, and knowing when I had all the pieces the book needed because it wasn't enough for me that they just feel like part of the same world. I wanted it to really be a reading experience from start to finish. I reached many false tipping points where I felt like, okay, I have enough pages to start playing with putting together a manuscript, but they weren't the right pieces yet. I kept feeling like I was really close to having a book ready and then sort of falling through the trap door of that and realizing, oh, no, I, I think I'm actually very far away from completing this. And and maybe those those false bottoms are important, that hope to, that keeps you going, that makes you feel like you're close. Or maybe that made the process take a lot longer because I kept thinking I was close and kept trying to force it into a final shape when really what I needed was just to keep writing and and revising. It's frustrating that often the problems with our books and progress are also problems we're working through in our own lives and problems we have with our own dispositions and psychologies. And I think I also just needed time to stop trying to please certain 
authorities in in my mind and in my life with my work and to stop letting a kind of cowardice drive me, which is like this desire to be impressive and taken seriously instead of focusing on what I really needed to try and convey or say or risk. There, there were many important lessons across that that decade of my 20s. And I always come back to this moment with Vibe Francis at the Breadloaf Writers Conference, where she really challenged me to stop dancing around to try to impress and risk clarity and get to the heart of a thing. And as much as one can, there's always going to be an element of mystery. Always, always. We can safely risk that to an extent, which isn't to invalidate the very real risks that writing poses. It's just, it's it's a safer place to practice courage in that way. And I think so much of Judas Goat is reckoning directly with these forces of trying to please, daring to be displeasing. So yeah, I think I just had a lot of growing and and thinking and um, courage growth to do over those 10 years that was crucial to the book, ultimately. To my mind, it, it seems that you're articulating this idea of like mediation at all times. So when I first read Judas Goat, I thought a lot about finding one's place in context of orienting oneself against and within the natural landscape. And so for some backstory here, I I recently moved down into the Cumberland Valley and I met this book at a time where I was reading outside a lot, walking laps around the 15 acres that my little apartment sits on. And I will forever associate the trill of a cicada alongside that incredible line from Dear Birmingham, what I have wanted most is many lives, one for each longing, round and separate. So I'm curious as to, and, and, and you've already gotten after this is to, to an extent, but I'm curious as to how you might see identity and intention and setting coming to a head in these pages. I just have to say reading outside is so sacred to me. I think, ah, I mean, I love reading, period. But there is something, it takes it next level when you read outside and and the text becomes touched by the air, the environment you're in, those natural sounds. So just to say thank you so much for sharing that. It thrills me to no end to imagine the book being read in that sort of context. And also the description of moving downward into the valley is so evocative to me. I've been thinking a lot about the word deep and the notion of depth in regards to writing. Like, what do we really mean when, when we're saying that? And, and what does that inherent earthy metaphor tell us about what we're searching for? And I was just reading Helene Sisu's three steps on the ladder of writing it talks a lot about like descending and going downward as a way to get towards a kind of truth in writing when you envision this like 
when you are descending, mm. are you ever thinking about the return? Mm. I don't think I am. I think I aspire to always be going further down, um, which may or may not be the the healthiest way to approach it. People are going to think I have an unhealthy attachment to Vibe Francis, but this is again <laughs> reminding me of something brilliant she said, uh, where she advises having a way to bring yourself back. If you're challenging yourself to write into the cave of yourself, into the darkness, into the frightening places, she recommends having almost like a kind of talisman to bring yourself back, whether it's like a square of chocolate or you know, it's like something tangible in the world that will signal to you that you are no longer in that frightening place, that that you have returned to to a different, a different kind of life. And so I don't know what it says about me that I I don't want that at this point. I'm like, no, I did all the work to get this far into the earth, into the cave, into the darkness. And I just want to keep going. <laughs> um, yeah, to follow the earth metaphor, it's so much about chasing heat, too. You know, thinking about like the further you get into the earth, it gets cold and cold and cold. But then eventually, if you go far enough, it's going to start heating up again. I hear a lot of writers talk about trying to chase heat when when they're writing, and I think that's part of it. But I think we have to pass through a kind of coldness to get there. And I wonder if that's partly why cold returns again and again in Judas Goat. It's I noticed it often appearing near the end of poems, and I, I took some of them out ultimately because I didn't want too much of that kind of recurrence, but... It was interesting to me that often near the conclusion of a draft, a a cold temperature would seep in. I'm curious as to, and and mind you, I I think this this meditation on descent and depth and like the the molten core that is that is like risk in art making is 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 coalescing in a way that I that returns to these three variables of like identity and setting mm. and intention. So I'm struck by your varying nuanced portrayals of embodiment, mm. like the crisis of transformation or transition as it informs identity. So before we move forward actually i was hoping would you mind reading eastern washington diptych oh i would love to eastern washington diptych one if i write myself into a state does that make the state false in the background of one of the many pictures i take of patricia by the feeding ring two of the horses bite each other Without violence, how do I understand my life as meaningful? As if the only tool I owned for finding truth were a knife. Go as far as you can with that tool, says a voice in my head. Then bury it and pick up something else. There are so many narratives, and each one obscures meaning. I cut a slit 
and a sachet of cedar-scented salts while the bath steams. In the clean tile on the ceiling, I look like I'm in a coffin designed for someone shorter. My aunt, her heart's valve replaced and replaced and replaced and replaced. I carry a wisteria pod from her old house in my backpack, but I can't decide what scripture to say when I place its seeds over my eyes. I have been trying to decide for two years. 5 p.m., and already the foothills wear a varnish darker than my fingernails. Time and place are traps. A gray tongue groping under the lowest wire. Flames leaping through the grate to Vivaldi. My soul punching a shape in the stiff white grass and I freeze. Patrizia takes off her sweatshirt and the birds and the alders get louder. My mother texts to ask if I have a minute. My mother, my mother, how do I grieve the loss of something that's been returned to me? Alone in bed, I crop the photo so only the animals show, with their mouths open, as if singing. Forgive me. I am still learning how to know when a human will improve a scene. Two. The card you pull from the deck informs you you stand at an impasse. Branches overlapping at harsh angles, rain of a city on the other side. You bristle at the obvious, but sometimes it's helpful. How can you go toward what you're avoiding? Can't connect or won't. Back inside, by the fire, the heat desiccates your eyes but nourishes the imagery. Take, the Lord said of metaphor. Take. Eat. Is this the failure at the heart of your method? Symbolism? You often feel the urge to turn here to an epiphanic direct address. Oh, you. Orange glow in the corrugation of an ear. Oysters on ice in a plastic bag. Severing a shell's hinge to reveal the valve. A napkin across your lap, catching the brackish water. What? if you were not so careful. Thank you so much for reading that. Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room, located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings. Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at library.sewanee.edu. 
backslash Ralston. That very first line inquires, if I write myself into a state, does that make the state false? There is a remarkable balance between the rather contained shape of the poem and in this line and how it's lineated on the page as, as one fell swoop. And I'm struck by how that contrasts with like the wild, searing sentiment that it possesses. Can you talk a little bit about your recognition of form and feeling here? This poem came at a time when I was feeling so much frustration with myself and my own inclinations in in poems and in thought. I was really striving for a kind of breakthrough, a kind of newness. I needed to look back at, at myself and what I was doing and interrogate it in a certain kind of way. And I think that's why there are a lot of questions here. I think that's why the mode is in the first person, in in the first half of the diptych, and then in the second person, in the second half, it's like a a confrontation in in both form and mode with the self and and the self's way of making meaning with language and the recurring obsessions, etc. And I remember drafting this with Janishia's amazing collection, Eye Level, close at hand. And she writes many diptychs in that book. That was an invitation to, to try a, a different form in a poem, too. I think the poem leaps a lot from, from stanza to stanza, sentence to sentence, while also staying very contained in setting and preoccupation form and feeling in that way feel like they're in a resonant tension for me and you're giving it a title that tells us it's all taking place in one place is important to that too in this idea of of a diptych of a two-part poem a splitness and a duality is inherent there and i think of the many 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 oppositions and paradoxes that inform this book and my poetics in general in this relentless pursuit of a kind of truth, does there also always have to be artifice? Does there also always have to be a duality, a splitness, a, a two-facedness, even in a pursuit of whatever truth is? You had used the word contain. You, you have me thinking about containers here, and two, two poems that immediately come to mind are Little Lamb, where you have those five five-line stanzas, then three, then two, but are overall you're pretty boxy and airtight, and Conversation with Mary, which is in making use of the open space of the page. So with, with the idea of like the, the container in mind, do you think that the container of a poem is more of a protective measure or a trapping? Mm. 
I think that's one of those paradoxes that are so rich to me is that we they're so inextricable. The fenced pin around the animal, you know, it's protecting it on the one hand, but it's also captivity. And those sorts of tensions are just kind of endlessly fascinating to me. And I I love how the two poems you just named and also this one I just read, they're poems that are evoking formally on the page a conversational aspect. There's a that back and forth element is present visually on the page in some form. The little lamb poem, those boxy stanzas are sort of they almost look like stepping stones, like back and forth, like there's a dialogue happening. And I think at the heart of this book so often is intimacy, is one voice talking to another or looking at a very intimate moment between two figures. I'm I'm interested in intimacy as a concept and I'm interested in how intimacy might be evoked formally on a page. And so I, I wanted to play with that as much as I could without imposing those forms in an incredibly regimented way. I, I tried to let them emerge as organically and intuitively as possible. I I love that rendering of, of in Little Lamb, the stanzas as stepping stones with like these like artistic sensibilities, if you will, in mind. I, I want to briefly touch down in your visual work, your your illustrations, your your hybrid-like essays. There's this, and, and maybe this is a leap here, but I think this impulse towards forbidden felt language is made actionable through your dynamic relationship to written and visual art. And and so I'm wondering, do you find that these two sensibilities, one being like visual expressed image versus one is like written, articulated, do these inform one another or are they more like part of one whole? I will say that I I tend to engage with one as a way of trying to understand something about the other. So so when I was doing more of the visual work, I was in some ways testing a thesis about different kinds of imagery. And I keep returning more often to the image that can only be rendered in text. But I think creating images that are visual helps me understand the depth that I feel in the text-based image, if that makes sense. And I I wanted to try in the poetry comics I made in particular, where we have both. We have the visual illustrative aspect and text, which I hoped would be taken as a kind of new whole that on their own that would be very different experiences. So trying not to think of the visuals as an illustration or explanation of the information you are getting in the text, but really a surprising juxtaposition that 
if a viewer spent time with them together, they would come to a very different experience. And I, it was fun. I, I enjoyed the play of it. I, I think it was a very necessary and welcome counterpoint to studying poetry really rigorously and seriously. We, I needed an outlet where there felt like fewer expectations and rules where I could really just be free to play and explore and not make a certain kind of sense. And But I, I found that after a few years, it was less exciting to me, that, that mode of art making, the poetry comics, and I returned more fully to poems on the page. But I'm interested in, in ways we can bring full versions of ourselves to our art. And I am someone who, before I was writing, I was drawing. I, I drew all the time when I was really young. And so it also feels important to not shut that side of myself out, you know, the, the part of me that that wants to draw. Why not incorporate that with the writing? I think it's important to keep keep our minds and and hearts and hands you know open to those possibilities of of a hybrid nature and who knows maybe my energy will be drawn there again before too long you had mentioned your poetry comics and you had this piece in poetry northwest a few years back and it was called now i feel i am on my way uh in and, and it, it brings attention to a certain line from Mary Rufel's Dunce, uh, which reads, I grew up, I became myself, and was haunted by it. This feels like some primal echo of your own line in Eastern Washington diptych. How can you go toward what you're avoiding, can't connect, or won't? So I used to understand the act of I'm using air quotes here. <laughs> I used to understand the act of becoming as one of like cleaving, of carving a firm line between the old self and the new. But in these two textual moments, or rather as soon as these two textual moments were put into conversation with one another in, you know, my my reading and, and preparation and whatnot, I it seems like the project of becoming is one of terrible totality, <laughs> of, of like fulfillment. Mm. So I'm curious, like, how does this posturing land with you? Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I, oh, what is it? It's another paradox, right? It's like transformation is in part just like, a reckoning and an acceptance of certain aspects of the self that we we can never cleave from or or be free of or or change it's yeah both an an accrual like a widening outward i feel and and simultaneously a a, a carving away to some sort of mysterious kernel at the heart it's a paradoxical inward outward motion i fear um but but who knows really i think i mean just to circle us back to where we started and thinking about place and and leaving a home place i think so many of us who have ever 
moved far away from our homes and experienced how that new setting did and did not change us in ways we might have hoped or feared knows knows that truth knows that paradox or at least feels it because setting does affect us absolutely and it is still us there and you brought up the word primal and i think that's something i'm very interested in obsessed with whatever that means a kind of human primal experience that we can access through poetry with all of its mysterious clarities and the senses i'm pretty fascinated with precisely that uh that question you asked where where is the self and and what does it even mean to to transform or or to change really maybe it goes back to that idea of of digging and burrowing and and going deeper that is a form of travel you are going to a new place and you're going towards a kind of of center and perhaps this this kernel that you mentioned like it it demands the descent ah the kernel demands the descent i love that before we continue i would love to hear you read Judas Goat. Yes. Title poem. The eponymous. <laughs> I know that word is really making a comeback. It I've really noticed. <laughs> it's like I didn't see that word anywhere until like this book was coming out and suddenly I saw it everywhere. Like, it's a very it's a very reachable, like five dollar word. It you know is. what I mean? Yes. Okay. Judas Goat. We of our ends are perhaps all this oblivious. One goat trained to live with the sheep, neck bell jingling in and out of the slaughterhouse. To the goat, the shackling pin is no more than another human room. After, it's fed a feast of roughage. Sprigs of sage timothy, cedar chips, carrot beards. It sleeps. What sheep? Wild goat's eyes, when we catch them, are always open, but this goat dreams. Its lips twitch as it lies, curled chin to thurl behind the pen. Each morning, that silver bell is affixed to its neck. It leads the flock. Whiter than all the loose-legged lambs, it approaches under a bright summer sun, the gate. Grass on either side, green. I am too dying of what I don't know. I'm I'm thinking like there's a there's a kind of freedom in having a basis for for like the feeling or the idea that you're wanting to express. And with consideration to both this poem and, and maybe in general too, depending on how you want to tackle it, like is is the parable an instructive form ultimately? I I think it is intended to be, but I think beguilement can be its own instruction. Like I think like many poems themselves, a parable 
can be about the feeling it evokes in you or the questions it invites you to ask yourself and then carry forward. It's not necessarily um, a form with only one distillable takeaway lesson, perhaps. Um, and I, you know, I've never tried to unpack this, but it's reminding me of you know, the form and tradition of the fairy tale, too, as a form rooted in storytelling, intended to, like, you know, many poems, delight and instruct, but and also scare, which I love that element of the fairy tale, too. It's like delight, instruct and terrify <laughs> children in particular. Um, yeah, I think it is, you know, intended to impart a lesson um, that can be applied to one's life, uh, philosophically at least. I want to now touch down again in, in your poem. I, you constellate ideas of uncertainty, of, of mistrust, and this uncertainty arrives like a double-edged blade because, to my mind, it is both grounded within the poem, we of our ends are perhaps all this oblivious, and in its narratological framework, in that it ends on that blistering final note. And I understand this crisis of uncertainty, in the broadest of terms, as feeling something versus naming it. And sense seems to be at odds with perception and and in this poem it lands as a betrayal of animal impulse or instinct and i hope that doesn't it isn't i'm not being prescriptive here so with this idea of like trust and verity i'm wondering how you grapple with authority in a poem and and my question is like are complication and resolution always at odds with one another? Resonant odds, I think. But as for how I wrestle with, with authority in a poem, I think poetry for me is a very pressurized form. And I think the pressures of authority on, on a self, poetry gave me a place for for a kind of rupture of, of those pressures and a way to, to speak back and speak into more, more disobedient places against various kinds of authority, whether they were religious authority, patriarchal, just of, of the mind. And being mistrustful of, of the self as an authority even on one's own life. I mean, I see in this poem in particular, it's just so haunted by ignorance, which is kind of by definition impossible to write about, except by looking at another figure's ignorance that we can see and assuming that we also have that ourselves. Here we have a human looking at an animal, but by looking at the animal, also looking at other kinds of humans, because of course it's the human who is who has trained the goat this way to this end. Thinking about how we, as humans ourselves, are are trained in service of ends, we 
might not even be conscious of, but that nonetheless have really tragic outcomes. It's it's an idea that is deeply haunting to me, as I think this poem probably makes clear, and how you, you could be going through life. Yeah, grass on either side green, but that's <laughs> that's not the case, is it? Hearing you read this poem aloud, first, it, it is just a testament to how like the the shape of a poem is is sometimes only made apparent as soon as it's like the 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 writer conjures it aloud and in this case i am just so taken by how like the the vowel sounds take shape in the throat and how that that puts firmer edges around the the song that you are singing now that I'm hearing you read it out loud, the the idea of slumber, it it takes me back to, I think the second poem in your collection should should the first calf of winter be white, you're going to hate, where, that the speaker asserts feigning sleep was my first job, and and now here, this this idea of if mis- mistrust sort of bubbles up again, but I'm just I'm thinking about not only the shape of the poem but the shape of the collection as a whole, too. So thank you for, for reading it out loud. And poetry is good food. Uh, poetry you know? is good food. And uh, I appreciate what you just said for many reasons, but in part because I've been on such a journey with my own voice in the air as it pertains to my work. There there was a, a long time when I really kind of hated the sound of my own voice reading my work. It felt like I wasn't able to do justice by the rhythms or the voice in my head that I heard when I wrote it. And I really felt like, and still feel to an extent, like the ideal theater for these poems to live is maybe in the reader's own voice or in their head as they're reading it. Um, so it means a lot to me to hear that you think there's some value in in hearing me read it out loud. I, I've come a long way towards making peace with my own physical voice um, in regards to the work. Each and every one of your poems, you know, just since we're talking about how, how reading the thing out loud is so different than than encountering it on the page, and I'm thinking about how each and every one of your poems in, in this collection struck me as living artifacts and that all at once they 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 land as like a, a past life and a premonition and a parable. I'm still thinking about like authority and how that informs stability on the page. So when do you feel a poem is finished? It usually takes me a long time. The reactions of other people help me. They're not the the final say, but it's difficult for me to really feel that a poem is, air quotes, finished until people I trust have read it and told me that from their perspective, it feels it feels finished. But for me myself, Reading out loud is an important part of the process. If I can read it out loud and I feel an energy all the way through and I don't hit a snag or a 
something that just flags in my intuition as like unfinished, unfinished. But it's it's so rare to ever get to a point where there's nothing that that bugs or that whispers of an untapped potential. Um, but you know, it's a collaboration with time too. I for me and working on Judas Goat, I really relied on publishing individual poems in journals as part of that refining and revision process because like, you know, transferring a poem from handwriting onto the computer or going from a computer screen to printing it out. There's something about seeing the poem in a new context or or form that can sometimes help you push and revision or, or see with a new kind of clarity. Um, and so I would often realize final edits and revisions I wanted to make after seeing a poem published in a journal. And I I always remain open. I always remain open to realizing there's a truer, more alive or more resonant way of conveying something. And um so yeah, I'm always really grateful for for feedback from others. You know, at that point, I can take it or leave it, but I, I would prefer to have the information and the reaction from people. As for how I know when it's finished, sometimes I never do. Sometimes, I mean, as with the case with the book, you know, you get to the final round of edits and then you you can't change anything anymore. But yeah, it's it's a feeling more than more than anything i just try to to get it to where it's only the the essential most alive pieces <laughs> speaking of endings ending things i'm hoping you might close this out by reading the first poem huh. in this collection end with the beginning love it the dog he didn't want to tell me He almost didn't. It was luck, much more than gut, that made me ask. A beer opened an hour earlier than usual, the desire for conversation. There was no sense in me that he was in some sort of aftermath. He said, when I asked, I had a bad day, or... I had a weird day. I can't remember. I saw a dog, he said. I was on the train. A man with a dog on a leash. The man ran and made it, but the dog hesitated outside and the doors closed. No, not on his neck. On the leash, trapping it. The man was inside, and the dog was outside on the platform. The button beside the door ringed in light, blinked. The man was shouting now, hitting the button, all else silent. The befuddlement of dog pulled along, the pace slow until it wasn't. The tunnel the train must pass through, leaving the station, is a perfectly calibrated, unforgiving fit. 
The dog had a color and a size I don't know, so it comes to me as legion, large, small, fur long or short, white or gray, but the man always looks the same. As I held him against me in our kitchen, the moment sharpened my eyes. How easily I could imagine a version of our lives in which he kept all his suffering secret from me. I saw the beer on the counter. I saw myself drink it. When we went to bed, I stared at the back of his head, split between compassion and fury. My nails gently scratching up his arm, up and down, up and down, the blade without which the guillotine is nothing. Thank you for listening to the Swanee Review Podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Swanee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at www.theswaneereview.com. To discover what's happening at the Review, visit our website or follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages at Swanee Review. Until next time, this is the Swanee Review. New since 1892.